1: soccer show weekend review the premier league is back and a title race is unfurling despite the record-breaking goals of a man named erling city and liverpool split the points and the game wasn't a stunner you might not have loved it Unless you're a gunner. Elsewhere, Newcastle found themselves far from full strength, but Thiago Silva helped them keep Chelsea at arm's length. Everton's chances of survival have become more slender, but their game with Man United gave us a goal of the season contender. He may have the hair of simple Jack from Tropic Thunder, but Garnaccio's <laughs> goal was a Premier League wonder. Elsewhere, the Derby d'Italia had one winner only. It was the Milan team, coached by Stefano Pioli. Harry Kane keeps on scoring while Real Madrid are far from boring and MLS Cup's conference finals are set. Which of the final four are the best bet? Mm. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, your friend and mine, sickness is Taylor Rockwell. Hello, Taylor.
2: Hello, as always. Yes. uh, Child on the way. Child already here. Sickness everywhere. Everyone is homesick today. It's going to be an interesting recording session. The door is locked, but I'm sure my daughter will find a way to pick the lock and come in, though she is. But three. Ryan, that introduction was terrific. I love the eyebrow flick on Unless You're a Gunner. That was lovely. (laughs) And the garnacho hair thing uh, does stand out. I showed my wife that goal because it's so impressive. And she, I think immediately responded like wow what an amazing goal what's with his hair yeah and and yeah it's I the eyebrows, feel like it's the eyebrows are even more confusing also, than the an, hair. Issue. also yeah. an issue
1: also an issue we're too old to understand
2: that kind of thing yeah. Taylor is my conclusion Joe you're a resident young person you have that haircut right you're just wearing a hat right now to cover it up yeah. w- what's up with that style
1: let's uh, talk about it's, it.
0: it it's popular it's in Florentino okay. Perez predicted it as he predicts all things in soccer there we go Florentino Perez <laughs> giving that haircut a building at some point Joe Lowry how are you <laughs> I'm doing quite well, feeling refreshed after a little bit of time off. I'm sorry, Taylor, that you're not, as Taylor is giving me a bright (laughs) smile into the camera. Have we ever done an episode of TSS where one of us hasn't been ill? Like, this is a legitimate question. Graham is sick 95% of the time. Taylor, I think you (laughs) fill in the other 4%. And Ryan and I probably split the last 1% that's left in that pie.
1: You and I are very healthy specimens, Joe. Thank you for uh, pointing that out indeed. Uh, Graham Ruthven how are you? Are you sick at the moment? Seen any good Ridley Scott films lately?
3: <laughs> Hello, Ryan Bailey. I am well and uh, not sick at the moment, uh, which is quite a, quite a feat given that I went to see Napoleon last week and that film was bad enough to, uh, to give me an illness. So uh, yeah, maybe not a film that I would recommend very, very long. Battle scenes are good, but not a great deal in between them, which I think is a Ridley Scott sort of trademark so if you're into yeah. that sort of thing go and see it i guess
1: let's send that film away to an island and banish it somewhere shall we graham is that your
3: uh, your review <laughs> yeah that happens twice in the film i don't think i'm spoiling anything because <laughs> this is history this actually happened but wow. you never actually find out why he was sent away to islands so yeah that's unfortunate very good. All right. We hope, listener,
1: you had a wonderful Thanksgiving break. Happy Cyber Monday to all those who celebrate, by the way. Uh, Patreon.com slash total soccer show for our bonus content. We've got bonus videos on there. We've got access to our Discord, which is like a fun private Twitter with all the worst things taken away from Twitter, Taylor. That's that's how is that a good way of describing yeah. our fun Discord?
2: Right. I do yeah. enjoy the Discord. I think that's fair. I was confused for a moment because I definitely thought you said Cider Monday and was assuming this was another boxing day celebration. Alright. Yeah. yeah. Alright, exactly. Harry. Would you wanna come exactly. Cider Monday with me?
1: Alright.
2: That's your that's your father in law speaking, right? Not Harry? Yeah, okay. uh,
1: Hag- Hagrid is my father-in-law, that's quite <laughs> yeah. right <yes>. um, <laughs> Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show once again, if you would like to support the show, we're back post-Thanksgiving baby, let's get into it shall we, shall we go to the Premier League Manchester City won Liverpool won, a meeting of the top two teams who went second and third with a draw after this one um, Graham, uh, another decent game between these two i mean it, yeah. was, it was it was exciting at the end when like city were pushing for the win and you could we could talk about the game of chess that was going on there's a few things i'd like to point out but your your overall impression of this game in which erling Haaland uh, became the fastest player in history to score 50 premier league goals in just 48 games uh, trent alexander arnold with the equalizer
3: yeah so i likened this game and uh, I, I wrote uh, a guardian column on um, the premier league weekend and i likened this match to the Dark Knight Rises and that everyone really wanted it to be good and I remember going to see The Dark Knight Rises and people coming out of that film and going yeah I, I, I liked it kind of like how you introduced this match Ryan Bailey with the, the tone <laughs> slightly higher and over time people have uh, kind of realised that that film wasn't particularly good and not a particularly good way to end that trilogy hopefully we're going to get a trilogy of Man City Liverpool title races this season although there are a few teams up there at the moment in, in the Premier League table I didn't think this was the best demonstration of both teams ability I don't know whether it was the 12.30 kick-off which was a little bit unusual having this game on so early on a Saturday the first game back after the international break. He loves that, by the
1: way, doesn't he? He's of course, of famously. Yeah, he loves 12.30 yeah.
3: uh, kickoffs. Liverpool's record, by the way, in early kickoffs is terrible. So that's perhaps the reason he's not such a fan. I don't know what it is about early kickoffs, but th- it just kind of dulls the spectacle a little bit. It feels like those games are a little bit sleepy, not not the, the same intensity. And that's kind of how I felt about this match. While there was obviously glimpses of these two, two teams' quality it did feel a little bit sloppy in places and by the end i think both teams were quite happy to settle for a point certainly liverpool i thought i thought this was a this felt like a bigger test for liverpool than city we know that city are capable of once they once they round into the new year they'll string 20 straight win, wins together because that's just what they do we've seen that from them before we're still kind of figuring out how good this liverpool team is after a bit of a summer rebuild so while their performance was a little bit uneven and we can maybe talk more about that a point away at the Etihad at this stage of the season where they are kind of building a little bit of momentum. It is, I wouldn't say a full statement, but like some sort of half statement result.
1: I I like that, Graham, as it being a bigger test for Liverpool. I think in many respects, they pass that test for me. I was impressed, as you say, away from home, that the the constant swarming that they do to block to block out the Man City uh, attacks was was very interesting the way that like Alvarez would get the ball on the halfway line it looked like they could break forward could Man City but then like they blocked that pass and everyone would be back in formation within half a second it's very very impressive the way Liverpool were able to sort of get back and and swarm and prevent anything that City could do for the most part I thought that was something you don't see from every other team they face.
2: I think I might disagree with you a little bit, Ryan. I'm curious to hear where Joe is on this one, because I felt like this was (laughs) a really, really strong performance from Manchester City. I don't take anything away from Liverpool, uh, and I think... It was a reminder of how good these two teams are, how much fun it is when these two teams play each other, even if it ends up being a one-to-one draw and Graham is unimpressed and not entertained. Uh, but I-, I felt like this was just like high wire acts from start to finish. It was risky passing. Every, every player uh, on both teams sort of okay with almost suicidal passing if it meant that they could try to exploit opportunities. Uh, and I think Allison was maybe the only one who couldn't end yeah. up following through with some of that passing. But I, I think... For how risky some of the play was, I think it requires technical precision, and I felt like both teams had that. But I did feel like Manchester City had more of it, especially Jeremy Doku uh, on the left. Uh, I think he had the most successful take-ons. or uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold was dribbled past the most times of any Premier League player this season, and it felt like City kept almost creating. I take your point that they didn't fully create, because some of those cutbacks and some of those shots aren't really cleanly taken. But even the moment before Liverpool equalise, Holland has that that shot off the cutback that is saved. If he takes it a little more cleanly, we're probably having a different conversation. But he doesn't, so we're not. Uh, But I do still think Liverpool will probably be the happier of the two teams to have gotten this draw. City, I think, looked better for large chunks of this game.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's a very fair assessment, Taylor. Joe, your thoughts on this one? Two, Two Titans here and suggesting that we might have a lovely little title race going on here.
0: It does seem that way, and that's been one of the, the biggest delights of the Premier League season so far is getting a really congested race between Arsenal, what we expected to be up there, Man City, the same, Liverpool, you know, probably, and then Aston Villa, Scotland's team. So all of these teams yes. that we expected, <laughs> yeah, Tottenham are, are kind of sort of not really in there too after all the injuries, but yes, there is a title race, and I think this result absolutely plays into that to give Liverpool a point here and Man City a point as well, but keeps them much more congested than, than a, a three points in either direction would have for this game. I thought City pretty clearly was the better team. Liverpool weren't played off the field by any stretch of the imagination, but City controlled the game. Liverpool really didn't threaten at all inside the first 30 minutes or so. Darwin Nunez had a a couple of nice moments, but he wasn't incredibly dangerous. City were the better team, and I, I liked how they really brought forward. Ryan, you mentioned Liverpool trying to swarm. I like how City are so skillful at kind of playing into that idea, right? We know that Liverpool are going to want to try and push forward. We know that under Jurgen Klopp, they're going to try to be aggressive while still controlling the ball in moments. And that's exactly what happened in this game. Klopp set up his team in in this sort of 4-3-3 defensive shape and pushed his number eights really high and really forward and and left Alexis McAllister deep as the number six, which is not a position that really any of us thought he was going to be in for any sustained period of time this year. He's still playing in that role And he was isolated early and often in this game because of how Klopp set up. And City are very, very deft at going and exploiting those spaces. They found some really easy progression moments on either side outside of McAllister. Really good one in the 32nd minute, just bouncing the ball kind of through that space off a player to then end up on Doku's foot in the final third. And Taylor, you're right. Doku was super involved in this game. And then there's another one eight minutes later. There's a couple even in between those that I, I kind of stopped writing down because they happen so often. City, I thought, showed their mental ability. I thought they showed their technical ability. Liverpool, maybe a little bit fortunate to get their goal late on because they hadn't created a ton. But overall, Liverpool's still in the title race. Man City still, to me, look like the best team in Europe, even though they're not even at the top of their own league right now. And I'm getting out the popcorn yeah. for the rest of this calendar year and beyond. The the city midfield setup was interesting. If if you
3: looked at the the pass map, which I went and found after this match, and and plotted some average positions from there, so you had Manuel Akanji, which is one of the biggest selection talking points from this game in a kind of midfield position. So you had on the basis of the of the pass map, you had Akanji and Rodri as a sort of double pivot, and then Bernardo Silva slightly for, further forward on the left. And then it's a kind of front four of Alvarez, Foden, Doku, and then obviously Haaland. The idea with Bernardo, Bernardo was that he would he would drift into the space between Salah and Alexander Arnold so that City would have an overload there with Doku stretching the pitch on, on, on the same side. I felt sorry for Joe Matip the number of times he was having to come over and and, and to try and stop Jeremy Doku. I'm not (laughs) surprised as well that Trent Alexander-Arnold's defensive numbers were... We're quite so bad because, uh, well, he has lots of quality, Alexander-Arnold on the attacking side of the ball, and we saw that in this match. We all know what he's like defensively. And Klopp this season has kind of just embraced those liabilities and pushed him more into central midfield and said to Joel Matta, right, well, you do two jobs against Jeremy Doku in Manchester City. That is a little bit more challenging. But Alvarez and Bernardo, they were the links between the midfield and the attack, and, and both of them are just so good at recognising space, I am always surprised when there's transfer gossip about Bernardo Silva because, to my eye anyway, he's just so important to this Man City team. He's a real Pep Guardiola player, that awareness of space that I talk about, the technical ability, the fact that you can play him in a deeper role in central midfield, you can play him out in the wing, you can play him as the number 10. He's a bit of a special ops player, and and in this match, it felt like he was in that team to exploit that space on the right side of the Liverpool defence.
1: Graham, do we need to credit City for doing what they're doing right now without probably the most important player as well, without Kevin De Bruyne in the mix.
3: So Kevin De Bruyne was at the F1 over the weekend. He looks very different. I'm not entirely... He's grown his hair out a little bit. He's. I think he's been taking some style tips from Dominic Calvert-Lewin. He was wearing jeans that... Are way too young for me, and I think Kevin De Bruyne might actually be older than me. So certainly too young for for him. <laughs> Hang um, on, what I, I, what kind of jeans are
1: too young for you? Explain that. Like
3: the young people seem to be wearing big baggy jeans. I remember when oh, I was okay. like twelve or thirteen and I wore big baggy jeans. But okay. I thought we'd I thought we'd gone a little bit more tailored than that, but they seem to have made a comeback. Yeah, uh, De Bruyne he's back, was my was, friend. <laughs> great, he's back. great. Yeah. So um, yeah, the, one of the one of the biggest compliments I can give City this season is to your point, Ryan. I saw Kevin De Bruyne at the at the F1 and kind of went, oh yeah, Kevin De Bruyne. He's not playing for Man City at the moment. That is, it's kind of flown under the radar a little bit because of the job that Bernardo Silva and particularly uh, Julian Alvarez has been has been doing for for City this year. So it'll be interesting
0: when he's fit again, how he how he fits into this midfield unit. I want to give one more plug for an injured player as well, Manuel Okanji filling in in that midfield area for John Stones, who's sort of been working his way back. Is on the bench in this game, doesn't have to step on the field. City are so good at identifying players who can, number one, do multiple different things, but number two, who can fill in for players when they are unavailable for whatever reason, whether that's F1 or, or, you know, anything else, right? So, Akanji, I brought this up, I think the last time we talked about City in detail, he's slotted into that midfield space in possession next to Rodri, and City haven't really missed a beat. He's not quite as dynamic as John Stones in that part of the field, but Pep has completely gone to this, let's push a center back into that area rather than a fullback, and it is, it's is—it's totally worked for Man City. They win trophies last year. They come in this year. They're still playing good soccer, even despite missing a number of key players. I have tons of respect for what Akanji has done. Graham, I think you're right to point out. Bernardo Silva and especially Julian Alvarez in the half spaces for City. The structure is still basically the same, and yet they're missing multiple key players. And it, it doesn't really feel like... I know we're talking about this after a draw, but it doesn't really feel like they're, they're missing much at all.
3: Mm.
1: Kanji doing well grabbing goalkeeper's arms to prevent goals being scored as well. Did he? has been working on that in his I, game. Did he right?
2: though? I, well,
1: what, what do you think about that? Do we think because there's been some controversy about that the goal that was ruled out for was, was it DS? I think he's got um, yeah and there was a foul on Allison from Akangi. Um Pep Guardiola very unhappy about that situation. I Think he was comparing it to the Newcastle Arsenal situation. Yeah, we had that's the thing. Back. It's
3: then consistency, right? So I, I can kind of buy the decision being made, but a few weeks ago we had almost an identical. I would actually say the Newcastle one was more of a push than this one, and um, you know that 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 that's allowed, and this one is 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 disallowed. So it's then consistency. I'd imagine is the infuriating thing. I can see Joe's eyes glossing over as we talk about referee decisions. Hey, I saw Joe fighting with people on the
0: internet last night over VAR angles. Oh, so he yes. indulges this this, oh, this sort of thing from time to time, right? Joe, oh, off the dark. It, like it. it was a bad weekend for ref controversies in Major League Soccer. I'm dreading it. We'll talk about it later. We'll talk about it tomorrow. I've already written something about it. Please make it stop. Please. I'm excited <laughs> about it. I'm excited about it. I I don't know. I have like I have some sympathy
2: for that goal being disallowed. I feel like it wasn't that much of a shove but I think it's established that anytime you make contact with the goalkeeper when they're going up to try to catch a ball it's probably going to be called as a foul my larger question for any of you all who maybe have watched more Liverpool than I have or just for Liverpool supporters who are listening is Allison a little bit of a problem or is this just a one-off no, game and that's that, a genuine that's a one-off question. game it is yeah. okay thank you because he has the three mistakes in this one that are all just very nervy they're very um, they seem to be like, like lacking confidence or just lacking the consistency you need to function in a Klopp team. So you're saying just a one-off, gram?
3: Yeah, I, I listened to a Liverpool podcast okay. last week that was talking about Alison Becker not just being the best goalkeeper in the Premier League, but maybe the best goalkeeper of all time, which just feel, felt a little bit hyperbolic to me, but a bit. yes, he's, he's been one of their best players so far. Wait, season.
2: so a Liverpool podcast says that he's the greatest goalkeeper of all time, and so he's not a problem?
0: <laughs> is that you're acknowledging that there are other podcasts out there which we just yeah, know right? is not true so we know you're delusional first of all um taylor you're you're specifically referencing issues with his feet in this game correct because you have the you have the yeah, long that ball that sense. isn't a long ball and the build-up to erling holland's classic erling holland goal he has a couple of other scuffed moments of distribution he has the
2: misplay that foden then shoots right
3: back at him and like yes the, uh, that was minute. the worst one that was yeah. worse than the, the one that led to the goal
0: yeah, they man, the goal one is sneaky bad too, though, because your mm-hmm. defensive structure is just not prepared for that to, to come off Allison's foot in the way that it does. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is, it's still a bad look from Allison and, and certainly a down game from him distribution wise. But just to sort of refocus listeners, because I think it's a valid point to bring up, especially because it played into real chances for City. But Allison's real value, yes, he can play with his feet. His real value is in his shot stopping. And he didn't pull out like a ton of crazy stuff in this game. So it's not the best game to make this point after. But he was absolutely elite in the Premier League last year in terms of saving goals. I just looked it up as as we were talking. Uh, To refresh my memory, he saved more than 10 goals over expected last year. 10 goals. Like that is a massive season altering like financial game changer for Liverpool allison is and, and the same goes for all goalkeepers the biggest value that he provides is with his shot stopping and it, again it didn't pay off in a huge way in this game but the footwork stuff is still important but it's secondary and i, I even think that stuff's just kind of a blip for him in this match yeah maybe okay. he had
3: cold feet remember klopp put one of his yeah. mistakes a couple seasons ago <laughs> down to him having cold grass feet, was so maybe too long the
1: that. wind was blowing the wrong way lots of different things could have affected yeah. it yeah um taylor my last question on this game is a liverpool question They've been referred to as a team in transition. I think Jurgen Klopp's called them Liverpool Reloaded or something worse to that effect. Are they in transition? They're doing quite well for a team in transition, I would argue.
2: Does that mean we're getting Liverpool Revolutions at some point, like 10 years from That's now, right. if we're going with with Matrix sequels? Uh, sorry, I got so excited about Matrix sequels. What was your question? Are they good? <laughs> Probably. Are they in transition? <laughs> uh I mean, no, I think they've, they've probably <laughs> do transitioned. Do you really think my question would be, oh, they could, by the way? <laughs> no, I do not. <laughs> um, I mean, I think they, they've transitioned pretty effectively. I think Joe laid it out as to why uh, Alexis McAllister looked sort of isolated at times, and I think it's always easy to posterize the person who's least at fault. That's sort of why I take issue with, with Allison for that goal, is just that I think Subaslai ends up looking sort of weak for his defensive efforts, Alexander-Arnold the same, the center backs are criticized for not closing Erling Haaland down, but when the whole team is trying to break quickly and then suddenly realizes the ball was under hit 40 yards, I have some sympathy. I think those sort of individual issues aside, it does feel like they have found some solutions to the existing problems they had. I think if we judge them from the Real Madrid standard of replacement, I think we're always going to deem them lacking because Real Madrid have so effectively replaced that midfield. But I think Sopasla, McAllister, Curtis Jones coming in and, and, and uh, being a, like an Academy player who has sort of shown that he can hang in my mind, at least uh, is pretty important. I, I still have questions about Jean Matip. So I think there is still some development and some sort of further evolution of this team. But I do think from where they were last season, it feels like a, a, a strong, sign of progress, a strong sign of improvement, and a strong sign that Jurgen Klopp is continuing to stay focused and diligent and dedicated to the team. I,
0: I agree with all of that. I, I'll just add, I guess, There's maybe the, the beginning part. They are in transition, right? Like, like this team is transitioning from, they're in the process of transitioning from one era to the next. Like, I didn't read that quote from Klopp. Maybe Ryan Bailey's just making stuff up. I assume that's not the case. But like, th- they are, it, it is possible. They are in transition, right? It's Don Nunes, who's, this is his second season. We still haven't even seen two full seasons from him as the number nine, Saudi Mane is gone. Mo Salah's role is decreasing. They're playing with one young number eight on the left side, and then Sobis he who was a new signing. McAllister's a new signing in a different role. You look at the back line, and that that is going to change over time, and we're already seeing bits and pieces of that. And then you have the tactical stuff as well, that, Graham, you kind of brought up earlier, I believe, of Alexander-Arnold playing in midfield more often. Liverpool in this game in basically like a 2-2-2-4, two, 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 trying to do math here. They They basically pushed... Alexander-Arnold next to McAllister in midfield, as they've done for a bunch of this season, and then just stack numbers centrally, this is new stuff for Liverpool. The thing is, and Taylor, where I do agree with you, they're transitioning well, and and probably better than I thought they were going to. I don't know that they're going to keep pace with the big dogs by the time February or March comes around. I, I kind of doubt that they will. They haven't really been hit as hard by the injury bug as some of these other teams have been, but they're in transition, but it's a credit to Liverpool at how well they're actually undergoing that process. Let me ask you this, then, for all of you all. Uh, like, because Ryan, I know where the
2: question is coming from. Joe, I appreciate your your nuanced additions to the answer. My question then becomes: Is there ever a manager who's going to be like, "Yep, this is the final form. Like, nothing else to no. be done after this." Like, I, I feel like you're always going to get we are building towards something. We're building towards like this season, but also next season. I just I don't know if you're ever going to get a manager who's like, "Now nah, we did it. We're good." Maybe Bruce Arena. Bruce Arena is probably the only <laughs> one who'd be like, "There's nothing else Do to we? learn. It's not that hard." I suppose with the
1: transition, it makes me think of NFL like those rebuilding seasons. Ah. It, imply, it implies you're not going to have as much success as you would if you were, um, you know, on a, on a different trajectory. Right. That makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that's true. And you could even contrast City and Liverpool in this way. Right. How many massive transfer moves did City make? Yeah, they they spent money. They added Doku, they added a couple of players, but they didn't transition in the same way that Liverpool have had to change their yeah. squad. And I think that's the I think that's the crux here. And that's why I want to give Liverpool credit, even though I think they were the second best team in this game, and they probably haven't been the best team in the Premier League at this point in the year, is the fact that they've gone out and identified players. They've hit on a lot of those players. They're still playing very, very impressive soccer, and they're still hanging with the teams that I think are still a rung above them in the ladder. They are in that transition process and and maybe kind of always will be because they're not Man City, but they they can hang even with teams that aren't right now. That's well said. I think for me
2: the other addition would just be that Liverpool under Klopp have become so strong so consistently. They've had down seasons for sure. They've had seasons where they were fully having to rebuild, but they are so good that I think of them as even when they're rebuilding, they are not sort of bottoming out to get the top draft pick for various reasons. Uh, But like, I feel like Liverpool are always under Klopp title four or top four challengers. And then it's like, what else can they do from there? I think Joe's right. They probably don't have the pieces to really, really run Manchester city close this season. Famous last words. Um, But I think they're always good enough and consistent enough and able to identify talent. And more importantly, maybe identify the talent that they brought in that doesn't quite fit. uh, and, And to kind of keep some level of consistency in that team. So that's where I think, they are probably always a team in transition, but at the same time, they're a team who fundamentally knows who they are, what they want to do, and how they want to play. So I think it's it's sort of a things-can-be-two-things things situation.
1: All right. Why don't we transition towards a little break? Uh, plenty more Weekend to review. We'll do that shortly.
0: This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before?
1: Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our Weekend Review. Why don't we head to St. James's Park, Joe? Oh, Newcastle, the place worth visiting north of London in the UK. I recommend <laughs> it. Uh, Injury-ravaged Newcastle. This is second-half goals from Jamal Decells. Joe Linton and Anthony Gordon uh, giving Newcastle that dub. Raheem Sterling with that lovely Ronaldo-esque knuckleball, do we call that, that free kick that he put in? Jerry uh, sure. James sent off a silliness. Uh, Thiago Silva, though. Oh, boy. So... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Chelsea before the game tweeted out Our brilliant our brilliant Brazilian oh no. at 39 years and 64 days Thiago Silva will today become Chelsea's oldest ever outfield player Oh no It showed It yeah. showed a little bit um, <laughs> Kicking the ball into his own leg to give away a corner Giving away the ball for one of the goals uh, Not a classic day yeah. for the Brazilian Joe Not a classic day for Chelsea either
0: no, well, maybe depends on what time frame we're talking for Classic here. If we're talking recent, <laughs> recent seasons, for Chelsea, it feels like this is right in line with so much of that. I, I don't know if there are these accounts for, like, you know, Premier League or whatever. I assume there are these sort of images before unfortunate events. That one that you just described, a screenshot of that, that message from Chelsea. Fits after this game because that did not age particularly well. Chelsea in general, just so error-prone in this game. I saw the scoreline before I went back and, and watched, and I sort of thought, okay... Newcastle have a ton of chances they're probably pretty dominant in this game they were but not in the classic like we're creating a ton of chances for ourselves kind of way it was Chelsea making their life so so easy incredible free kick from Raheem Sterling yes I'm glad you mentioned that Ryan but poor marking from Chelsea on Newcastle's second goal after Isak puts them up early on in the match it's poor marking from Chelsea on the, the goal that Lascelles finishes off And then you get a turnover and build up from Chelsea on Newcastle's third goal, which comes right after the second. And at that point, you're down 3-1. You're playing away from home against a good team in Newcastle that, yes, has been ravaged by injuries, but still has quality. You're done. Like, you just shot yourself in the foot, not once, but twice. And you took any chance you have of getting even a point out of this game away from yourself. I want to say that I kind of couldn't believe this coming from Chelsea, who I still think are better than where they are on the table. I still think they're better than 10th in the Premier League. That's not a hot take. But man, it doesn't feel like it's that big of a surprise that they're putting in performances where they just end up making life so difficult for themselves.
3: Yeah, this was certainly a regression by Chelsea after a couple of really positive performances before the the international break. They, they beat Spurs away from home in, the, in that chaos game. And then, of course, there's another chaos game against Man City where they, they draw 4-4. And there were some real positives to take from that. But... This was, uh, as Joe says, a, a, a very error-prone per- per- performance. I thought that there was a lack of defensive concentration for all four Newcastle goals. A lot of loose passes, no real cohesion, and quite notable that that Pochettino really piled into his players after this game. He called them soft. He said it was the, the the worst performance of the season. Um, there was no sign of the energy intensity that we had seen in those games against Spurs and, and and City. So I can see, I can see why he was so angry. My counterpoint to that is. This is a young Chelsea team. This is a work in progress of a Chelsea team. I don't think transition, transition, yeah, team in transition, to use your 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 term uh, there, Ryan. And so this is the kind of thing you're going to get from Newcastle. Now, ideally, you hope that the the big errors don't come from your most experienced battle-hardened player in Thiago silva by the way the best moment for him or the worst moment depending on which way you look at it was the pirouette straight out of play um <laughs> where newcastle then scored from the corner and my favorite moment in that moment is anthony gordon standing over him like nelson months pointing and laughing directly at him <laughs> anthony gordon by the way is a is a low-key poop house he's got that he's got that mm-hmm. in him uh so i yeah. love that moment i also love joe linton Absolutely just mullering his finish from about eight yards out, which made me think, why don't more players just do that? If you're clear through one on one, just absolutely bluter it into the back of the net. None of this finesse nonsense. I love that moment. Um, but yeah, Chelsea, not a love for them to not a lot for them to love from this match.
2: Graham is every like under 8s coach I've ever experienced. Like just kick it as hard as you can. <laughs> yes. See what happens. Yeah. Uh another <laughs> another sort of like similar to my Allison question, another question I have for for the group. Is this sort of like a Pochettino thing? Like I feel like Spurs would would regularly have sort of losses that defy logic. They had a 5-1 loss to to Newcastle I think in 2016 when he was Spurs manager. And looking at its numbers, uh I think Spurs in 27 away games versus Big 6 opposition, 3 wins, 9 draws, 16 losses. Uh, they had a 7-2 loss to Bayern Munich on the road in the Champions League. It feels like sometimes his Spurs teams would have these just strange moments where they just weren't up for it or didn't have the sort of tightness that you expect from one of his teams. And I also think about when Mourinho takes over after he's gone, Pretty much all Mourinho talked about that I remember was how soft they were and how they didn't have the right mentality and they didn't have that winning edge. And it's a weird thing to hear Pochettino say very similar things about this current Chelsea team. Maybe that's just a thing managers say when they lose like this and didn't see the spirit there. But it is a strange thing of like on the one hand, I don't think it's that much of a concern for Chelsea. I feel like these results are going to happen as they kind of figure it out. But it also does feel sort of par for the course for Pochettino.
0: Yeah, I think my theory on why this might be a bit of a trend, I hadn't seen those numbers on Pochettino teams against other elite teams. But my theory, and this isn't just tied to Pochettino and whatever team he's coaching at any given time, is that because he wants to play like the big teams, right? he wants to play this expansive style. We saw that with Tottenham to a certain extent. We're seeing that with Chelsea to a certain extent because he wants to play that way against even teams that are filled with quality and yeah. he doesn't quite have the elite of the elite to actually go out there and do it, you're going to see more of those error-prone moments, right? Versus Man really City, yeah. who, who may be coached by a slightly better coach, right? I, I think Pep Guardiola has done a lot. Hot take again. I think he's done a lot, and I would probably prefer him to lead my team over Pochettino. But the real difference between City and, and Chelsea right now isn't the manager. The real difference is one team has a squad full of the absolute best players in the world, and the other has a squad that is largely young or too old in Thiago Silva's case and has a lot of weird oh, cool. goop in the middle that they can't exactly figure out what to do with when you still want to play a certain way. And yeah, Chelsea gave up some possession here, but in general, Potch <laughs> wants to play a certain way and you don't have the absolute best players to do it. I think you end up with more of these moments where you're sort of scratching your head and thinking, how do we just give up two goals in 120 seconds? Wow. Goop in the middle. They've That's got great. those players for eight years, Joe. you're right (laughs) thank goodness it's it's
1: going to be
2: some well-molded well-remunerated goop by the end of that situation
1: (laughs) all right let's uh, move on to Goodison shall we Everton with a 3-0 loss to Man United lots of protests at the stadium around the highest ever sanction given to a Premier League team a 10-point deduction let's get into that um, Taylor but also um, we have to talk about the goal from uh, the person with the haircut of Simple Jack from Tropic Thunder Alejandro Garnacho. yeah Uh, a goal-of-the-season contender easily, a push-cast contender arguably. It's going to be on the highlight reel for some time. Uh, but I think the conclusion for Man United fans, Taylor, from this game was a 3-0 result. Totally deserved. That completely reflects uh, a wonderful, wonderful Man United performance. Yeah, yep. good. yep, yeah. Yep. No
2: it. errors good. at all. No problematic moments yep. that would have been scored by a better team. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, no, it's totally all fine. Uh, I do love in these spectacular moments how often we should give credit to the overhit ball that leads to the the desperation. Oh, it's a bad bicycle cross. Kick. It's such a bad <laughs> cross. But like I think of that, uh, I forget who it was to point out that uh, without Jamie Redknapp, we wouldn't have the Rene Aguita scorpion kick, but that cross was so poorly hit that he was mm. able to then do the scorpion kick. And here, an overhit cross from Diego Dalot uh, allows Granaccio to pull off this bicycle kick, which is... Just a ridiculous finish. Uh, Better than Wayne Rooney. I don't know why we're comparing it to Wayne Rooney. Wayne Rooney hit it with a shin pad. Garnacho hit this one clean, and from the distance, and from the angle. It's just such a lovely finish. And it really is just a reminder, uh, J- Joe breaking news when it comes to Pep Guardiola being good. I'm going to break news when it comes to scoring early is probably good for momentum and does sort of ease that pressure off just a little bit. Yep. And I think scoring in that way also adds a little bit of joy to the festivities as well.
3: The goal coming so early felt very Everton, where the story had been all about their protest yeah. and the ten-point deduction. And all, their, all their fans have got the, the pink cards with corrupt, and then 150 seconds into the game, Gernacho pulls that out of the bag, and everyone in Goodison Park goes, "Well, yeah, I guess that was pretty good." And yeah. the, the air goes was... completely out of the balloon, out of the out of the whole <laughs> occasion. It, it was a it was an absolutely um, stunning goal. I I am a little bit warmer, I think, than both yourself ryan and, and taylor are on this manchester United performance nah, it, was good. it wasn't it was good yeah it wasn't a perfect performance far from it and everton actually had the higher xg Um, i think that's lar- largely because they just had lots of shots they did have a couple of good chances and onana is it calvert lewin that onana has a really good save from um or maybe a couple of saves from calvert lewin but it, it kind of felt like manchester United did have more of them as a team, both from a soccer point of view in terms of their structure, and there was a certain 18-year-old in central midfield who I think contributed largely to that to that sense, to that structure, but also just from a mentality point of view, because at 2-0 up and 30 minutes left, Everton were really rallying and the crowd was getting behind them, and Goodison Park is a, is a difficult, you know, cliche and all that, but a difficult place to go, and we've seen Manchester United collapse from there many times this season, but... They kind of responded and they, they were a little bit stronger in that moment of course they, they then scored a third goal. so um they're not going to win a title off the back of this performance might not even finish in the top four, but it, it was there were some positive signs um the largest of which being Kobe Menu.
2: Mm. Uh, Graham, yeah, quick clarification there, because Scott McTominay is 26, so I I think you listed him as 18. When Graham Graham said
0: that, I immediately scrolled through to see which Scottish 18-year-old midfielder was starting. (laughs) It turns out it was an English one. Graham, I'm proud of you. Way to go. He's from Stockport.
1: He's from Phil Foden Town. Yeah. Yeah, as you say, Graham. Pretty looks pretty composed for an 18-year-old. I think he had a goal line clearance in this one as well.
3: Uh, I was really impressed. So he, for anyone who doesn't know, um, 18-year-old midfielder, he played a big role for Manchester United in pre-season. We maybe had, we, I think we maybe mentioned him in our Premier League previews, p- potentially, um, because he had been playing a lot of time in pre-season. Ten Hag is, had talked glowingly about him and then said he was going to get a lot of game time. And then he got an ankle injury and he's only just returned from that injury. So I'm reluctant to... to reluctant to pile too much expectation on him but the performance he produced here was kind of the performance that Manchester United have been lacking in the middle of the pitch he was very strong in the tackle I think he won 100% of his tackles in this game he made more ball recoveries than any other player on the pitch he, he he did just watching him with the eye test he did the work of about three players in the middle and I haven't thought that about a Manchester United midfielder in a very long time not even just this season and when he had the ball himself I thought he used it very well. So. I know this is one match, it's his debut, he's 18 years old, but if he can maintain that, um, then that is a bit of a game-changer for Manchester United in that yep. area.
2: I think it also allows Bruno Fernandes to do more of what he wants to do. I thought Bruno was was very, very good in this game. Uh, he has the assist for the third goal that I think is, is silky smooth and it's a very good turn under pressure. But he also has the moment when Manchester United do end up getting the penalty. Uh, Anthony Martial initially booked for simulation the uh, uh, overturns that gives them a penalty bruno gives the ball to rashford because rashford is in such a poor run of form rashford buries that one and the hope if you're a manchester united fan would be that that sort of builds some confidence for him and more goals follow uh, and one more goal follows after that one for manchester united so certainly a good win for them a frustrating loss for everton i think for some of the reasons we've already talked about uh, that it felt like they did get some good opportunities they did create Ashley Young felt very hard done by on the penalty that was overturned. I'm not sure why. Uh, But that aside, I thought it was mostly an okay game from Everton. The scoreline not really reflecting it. But the ten point deduction. I wanted to ask, did did anyone else sort of miss that one? I feel like I'm just revealing how much I missed of late. But that that sort of like seeing Everton in the bottom three all of a sudden. I think I saw that happen before I understood why, and it was very confusing to me. This story, to me, sort of came, out, came about without a lot of fanfare, which is maybe how the Premier League Commission that uh, issued the ruling wanted it to be, uh, but I don't know, was anyone else like following this one from the jump, was anyone yeah. else more aware of this?
3: I, I certainly didn't miss it because my best pal who's an Everton fan was ah, yes. lighting up my phone last week. I think also just Thanksgiving maybe um kind of clouded that from an American point of view. But um yeah, it was a big story last week. Um I knew that Everton Maybe it we was Thanksgiving. Spe- went, Thanksgiving is probably why I missed this now that I think yeah. of it. But anyway, go ahead. Um when when I went down to Goodison um with my pal a, a few weeks ago we were talking about this and we were kind of speculating what the what the deduction might be and uh, ewan was saying like maybe four or five points mm-hmm. he'd looked at the rule book and looked at precedent i think the biggest deduction before that was portsmouth who'd maybe got nine points deducted yeah. um so 10 is a record and i don't think 10 was on anyone's radar but this kind of feels like the Premier League is making an example of Everton where you have the 115 charges against Manchester City. Chelsea have some charges against them as well from the Abramovich era. So there are some big cases for the Premier League to assess coming up and this might be them drawing a line in the sand. That's how it feels like to me.
1: Yeah, and it it Graham, it gives us precedent for Man City to be relegated to League One. Uh, you know, well, the yeah,
3: uh, what if if we're one hundred fifteen charges? Uh, one hundred fifteen times ten is like over a thousand, one thousand one hundred and fifty points. So <laughs> I'm not sure how City <laughs> are going to win the title if they uh, if, if if they get that deduction. Oh boy.
1: And it should be noted, I think Everton are going to appeal, and they think they might get it down to seven or eight points as well. But that could be pretty crucial as the season
2: goes. They. They definitely did it, though, right? By the way, my daughter just came in a moment ago and said hello, if you were wondering what that brief noise was. um, I- I'm sort of, like, having done a bunch of reading on this one. Like, I get why the frustration exists with the 10 points. We can talk about that. But it does feel to me like they pretty clearly broke financial fair oh, play yeah. the rules. They and held then, their hands up. Yeah, and that will sort of. I feel like they're still saying, like, oh, it's differences of accounting. I really enjoy any time the defense is – it's a misunderstanding. It's an, account- it's an accounting disagreement. But also, if we did break it, we have legitimate reasons for why we broke mm-hmm. it. It's a very nice two-pronged defense. But to me, it feels like they were accused of breaking it even more severely. Some of their loans were maybe like class- reclassified and-, and taken out of the equation, but still uh, exceeding the amount they're able to lose. I think that sort of just is very clear. Where I feel like there is very justifiable frustration from Everton fans would be that there are what, over 100 allegations against Manchester City. There are similar allegations against Chelsea. Yeah. Those feel less likely to be as harshly prosecuted as quickly, and I think there is a feeling of it's because it's Everton who aren't in a position to be able to fight as hard or as publicly or or as be, be as high profile. So that's why the Premier League has done this. Yeah. So it feels like though the punishment is, is harsh, it does feel sort of justified if that's what they're establishing. But as we've talked about with VAR then the precedent is established. And so then the question is, what are the punishments for Man City and Chelsea, Man City specifically, and and when are those coming? And it feels like
3: not anytime soon is the answer. Just one final point from me. We could go long on this. This could be a a, a big thing topic. It would have been a big thing topic if we'd had a a full slate last week. But Everton, one of their, their key points is... Unlike Man City, who, what was the famous quote about Man, from Man City about lawyers? Like, we'll just hire all the lawyers in the world to, yeah, was, to take
2: you down. They were hit with like a 50 million euro fine. And his response was, we'll hire 50 million
3: euros yeah. of lawyers to combat that. Yeah. So Everton contests that they've been working with the Premier League. They held their hands up to a certain extent, maybe not about everything, but they had been working with the Premier League. They'd been cooperating. And so they feel like they have been punished for doing that while other clubs are... Kind of getting away with just putting their head in the sand and and locking the door behind them and not letting the Premier League in. So that does that is where it feels a little bit unfair to me. Indeed.
1: Quick look around the rest of the Premier League from the weekend. Tottenham with a 2-1 home defeat to Aston Villa. Uh, perhaps the headline of that one being uh, the celebration on respectful uh, show for Terry Venables uh, on the day of his passing, uh, aged 80 years old. He was Tottenham's manager. He was Barcelona's manager and of course England's manager. He won the FA Cup as a Tottenham player in 1967 and again as manager in 91. <laughs> a Barcelona, they remember him as the maverick foreign coach who uh, brought them a title for the first time in a decade, established him as a one once again, he said to have inspired one of his teenage players with his tactics and his intense training. Uh, that was a fellow called Pep Guardiola. Um, England fans will also always uh, love him for Euro 96 and his uh, England team. Very much my formative years of being a soccer fan. So uh, uh, RIP Terry Venables. Uh, but Graham, for the game itself, uh, three consecutive defeats for Tottenham now. Is that Angel Ball's been found out? He's a fraud. Um, <laughs> is that right? Is that, the, is that what we're getting here?
3: Well, I think the narrative dictates that, yes, that is that is the case. Um, I'm finding it difficult to assess Spurs at the moment because their, their list of missing players is just so long. So for this game, uh, James Madison, Mickey Van de Ven, Basuma, Papi Sarr, Christian Romero, Richarlison, they were all either injured or suspended for this match. And it's not just the number of players. So many of those players were absolutely crucial to what made Spurs so good in the first, like, 10 games of the season. They just don't have the depth to replace them. I would contest there's there's no team in the Premier League that would have the depth to um, replace that number of missing players. Mm. They, they actually, Spurs, they actually started this match um, pretty well. They were getting in behind and and, and Son Hyun Min had a hat-trick of disallowed goals for offside. Now, of course, you could see that from the other side of things. Aston Villa have the best high line or the best defensive line in the Premier League in terms of how many times they catch opposition teams offside, um, but you could still see the, the Postacoglu principles and in, in, in how they were playing. Um, but then Emery made a couple changes at halftime and that allowed Villa to commit more bodies forward and attack, and it was a bit of a ding-dong game, but Villa, uh, they came out in the end with a win.
0: Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. It's, it's a difficult time for Tottenham right now. We're all push back slightly on on what you said, Graham, or at least maybe the, the framing of it. It's difficult to assess Tottenham's first-choice group of players right now because they're not on the field, right, because of all the injuries. It's not difficult to assess Tottenham as an overall club right now because we've seen real progress. We saw how quickly the first-choice group took to what Ange wants to do, and and they played some incredible soccer and played some good teams very, very well early on in the season. But the issue with this Tottenham team is kind of what it was always going to be, or at least what one of the issues is always going to be, is they still don't have the depth, right? I I know we talked about it a bit with with Liverpool maybe not having the top-end pieces to go and take down City. I don't know if anybody does in the Premier League right now. Tottenham just still don't have the depth or a couple of transfer windows away from being able to withstand a James Madison injury in the way that Man City can withstand a Kevin De Bruyne injury or in the way that Liverpool can sort of transition from one era to the next. That's kind of where they are right now. And so, yeah, it's impossible. It's not just difficult. It's impossible to assess Tottenham in, in their full strength right now because we just don't see it. But I think we're getting a very real picture of of kind of the state of the club right now, which is, it's not in a bad place, that's just the you know, unfortunate reality of where Tottenham are in this rebuild, refresh cycle, whatever we want to call it. Before we
3: before we move on, uh, can I just quickly give Aston Villa their, their their flowers? That's that's a thing that people seem to say now. I'm not sure where that came from, but anyway, go off, uh, yeah, I oh, I am wow. not sure what the ceiling. One. Yeah, I didn't enjoy that. I'm it's not same. sure what the ceiling is for this Villa team <laughs> right now. There's still no, something in me that says they will fall away at some point, but their form is prolonged over the full year. Only three teams have won more points in 2023 the Aston Villa, they have de- decent depth. So in this game, they brought uh, Leon Bailey, Jacob Ramsey and Yuri Tillemans off the bench. They have an experienced manager who can change matches in-game. As I said, he can, Emery kind of changed things at halftime. They are much better in the second half. So they're a serious team at the moment. They're only two points off Arsenal at the top. I'm not suggesting for a moment that they're going to challenge for the title, but they kind of have to be in that top four equation at the moment. I'm being very, very impressed with them.
1: Uh, talking of the top four equation Arsenal with a 1-0 win over Brentford a substitute Kai Havertz with a late winner to lead uh, to, to win that one Aaron Ramsdale with a few blunders in this game dispossessed, lucky not to concede Declan Rice saving him at one point with a goal line clearance uh, Ramsdale, he, he threw the ball into the ground at one point as well Graham I don't know if you caught that one it was uh, impressive
3: yeah, he'll be thankful he didn't throw it into the back of his own net such was his performance in this yeah. game there were a few moments like that and uh, quite telling that at the end of the match all the, the Arsenal team came over to him and were like patting him on the back, and I'm not sure if that's a great. Like I, I like the sentiment obviously, but it's kind of like a pity, a pity parade quite literally. Um, so yeah, I think David Raya will be back in 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 goals. Of course, he couldn't play in this match because he's on loan. I'd kind of forgotten he was on loan from uh from from Brentford, so it was Ramsdale for this one. There you go. Uh,
1: a nice stat from the Bournemouth, a 3 one win over Sheffield United. Justin Cliver becoming only the third player to score in Europe's top five leagues. He previously scored in Spain, in Serie A, in Ligue 1 and the Bundesliga as well. Uh, only two other players have done that. Of course, Graham knows them both off the top of his head, but I'll just say it's uh, Stefan Jovetic and Florin Uh Graham, big fan of 90s players, of course. Um, Luton with a 2-1 win over Crystal Palace. A huge win for Luton, their second of the season. They moved four points clear of the relegation zone. No thanks in part to Everton's aforementioned deduction. Arsenal-Man City among the next three games, Graham. uh, no dear.
3: Yeah yeah I was about to make the point that Luton that they are growing into the Premier League and I looked at their underlying numbers and they're they're pretty impressive so they're 13th for touches in the box they're first for successful open play crosses seventh for pa- uh, passes played into the box I would suggest that some of those numbers are going to take a dip with their next two games but mm. I, I I have been uh, I have been relatively impressed by them in recent weeks I thought there was absolutely no way that they could stay up and I'm kind of wavering now There we go. Uh,
1: One more for you from the Premier League. Burnley with a 2-1 home defeat to West Ham. A cruel one, this one. Thomas Suchek with a nice volley in the uh, 91st minute for the win for West Ham. Burnley have now lost seven straight home games. They failed to pick up a single point despite scoring first in three of those matches. Oh dear, indeed, for Burnley. One of those relegation spots probably being taken up by a pencil company's team.
3: Would, uh, yeah, did did you mention the Forest Brighton game at all? That I, I didn't, missed that was
1: a three two win for Brighton in that one. 10 man Brighton,
3: no less. Yeah, uh, so that's yeah. the that's the thing I want to highlight. So Lewis Dunk did what is now known as yep. the Sergino Desk yep. double yellow card, <laughs> and it might even have been it might have been even better than Sergino Desk because there is a video going around of Anthony Taylor describing what he said. So he's, he's it's for dissent. He gets the second yellow. It might it might actually have been a straight red. I think it's a yellow and then a straight red. And Anthony Taylor is asked. Five, you sent him off and he says because he called me bald <laughs> 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 so yeah that's 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 something new he said to sergino desk hold hold my beer i can do one better wow i mean anthony taylor took that harsh man i
2: saw well, his, no, I saw his I, reaction I, it was as though he had called him the worst that you can which maybe to a bald person is bald
3: i yeah. i uh, i kind of cleaned it up it's F ah. off you bald something ah. So uh, <laughs> Alright,
1: there's a bit more uh, Accouture more around Next term.
3: Tuesday I'm guessing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Okay. All right.
1: laughs> See you then Let's take a quick break, shall we? When we come back the rest of the continent, bit of MLS Much more Weekend Review to come back shortly
2: Another day is here And you're ready for it What to wear? Check Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help
1: Total Soccer Show, welcome back to Weekend Review. Let's take our attention to Spain, where Real Madrid had a 3-0 win over Cadiz, Rodrigo with a bracer, and Duke Bellingham. La Liga's racist hating that score sheet, Graham. Uh, Madrid still top by a point. Uh, Girona could go top again uh, as we record this evening on Monday. They're hosting Athletic Club.
3: Yeah, just to, to uh, do a quick beat on the Real Madrid's game, pretty comprehensive performance from then. They've, they've won their last three in all competitions. They've really gathered momentum since the Clasico. The two goals from Rodrigo in this game are absolute stunners. The first one in particular where he does this little nutmeg inside the box and then thwacks it in the top corner. Just an incredible goal. It's like a, a futsal moment before he just leathers it Joe Linton-style into the top corner. Hmm. And as you mentioned, Ryan, Jude Bellingham uh, was back from injury, and when he plays, he scores. Um, so, yeah, good good performance, good result for Real Madrid here.
1: Indeed. Less good performance probably from Barcelona with a 1-1 draw over Real Cano, a late own goal, rescuing the point there. Um, Una Lopez, the opener for Real a lovely first-time volley from long-range, Graham.
3: Yes, very nice finish. It seems like that's the way things are going for Barcelona right now. Another result that piles pressure on Javi, who is kind of scrambling a bit at the moment. I mentioned how Real Madrid have gathered momentum since the Clásico. It's gone the complete opposite direction for Barcelona, who have won just two of their last five matches. And even those two wins have been unconvincing. They've needed late goals or it's been a single goal win. They're just creating so few chances at the moment. And the worrying thing is players are now coming back from injury and nothing is changing there is one notable exception to that Gavi is out for the season he picked up an ACL injury in the international break that is a huge blow for Barcelona but He had been, this is my counterpoint, he had been playing in a deeper role before the international break and Frankie de Jong has come back now into the squad and that's kind of where he plays. So there is a direct replacement for him, um, but right now it just feels like, as I say, they're struggling to create opportunities. Nothing feels sustainable. Xavi's talking about going into the transfer market in January, but it, it kind of feels like at this point, they should be on be beyond short term solutions. Um, so Barcelona's next they're two hat. matches in the in the league, yeah, <laughs> uh, they're, they're they're against Atleti and then Girona. So it's getting to the stage that if Barcelona don't come through those two with, I would say at least one win, Javi could be in real trouble because we're at the point in the Spanish press where there's there's certain journalists and certain reports are starting to put forward potential replacements. And that is never a good sign when the discussion moves on from should this manager be sacked to who could replace this manager. He, he's, he's in trouble right now.
1: Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Tell you who else was in trouble this weekend, Graham. Sergio Ramos. Congratulations to Sergio Ramos for the 29th red card of his career in Sevilla's 2-1 Los Real Sociedad. He's now been sent off more times in the 21st century than any other player ahead of uh, Rafa Marquez with 21 and Felipe Melo with 20. 29 red cards for Sergio Ramos. What a career. Hang it in the Louvre. Uh, Let's go to Italy, shall we? To Serie A. Hey, Siri, show me two teams too cautious to try and win a game. You have selected Juventus (laughs) 1, Inter Milan 1. Inter remaining two points clear at the top of the table. Vlavic then La Toro with the goals in this one. Joe, Allegri, doing Allegri things. Uh, Yeah.
0: Yeah, it kind of seems that way. <laughs> I'm just happy that, that Graham's favorite striker, Dusan Vlahovic, got a goal in this game. It was a nice finish from him. Graham was nodding along and, and shaking his fist in a positive way. This game had some interesting tactical notes, sort of front twos from both teams, Weston McKenney pushing forward for Juventus, kind of running up and down that right half space at times. I've really enjoyed watching McKenney and it's sort of been an unfortunate thing that Tim Weah has been out injured and a lot of the attention has gone to McKenney from an Americans Abroad perspective. But he's been fun, and and you can see why he's getting regular minutes and regular starts for this Allegri team. That was a lot of fun in this game, but there wasn't a a whole lot of actual action, especially in the second half of this match. Only 12 total shots in this game, and not a ton of those coming from inside the box. Seven of 12 coming from inside the box, so not a lot going forward for either team. I usually expect Inter to be a bit more aggressive, but it's not a bad result for them. It's not a bad result for Juventus either. Ryan, I think you said it in your, your intro, maybe that the best winner of this game is Milan, AC Milan. So not a ton separating these teams, and that kind of holds true for the top of the title race right now.
1: Graham, anything more to say about uh, the, the Derby d'Italia before we uh, forget about it forever?
3: So I actually enjoyed the, the first half. The two goals are are, are excellent. The the link-up play between Chiesa and and, and Vlaovic. I think if Allegri can get those two to link up more often like that, then that kind of changes the picture for them because until now it's been Juventus' defensive record which has given them a platform. They went something like five or six games without conceding before the international Break, but if they can activate Chiesa in particular, but also Vlaovic as a front man in those transition and counter attacking moments, then that makes them a different threat. I, th- I thought it kind of fizzled out in the second half, at least in terms of chances, and it became quite sloppy and, and, and scrappy. Um, Inter can certainly play a lot better than this, but as, as uh, Joe kind of referenced, the positive is they went away to UV, still managed to get a result when they weren't able to really get a, a grip of the midfield and they lacked creativity. I thought I thought the, the approach from Inzaghi in the last 20 minutes was a little bit confusing because there were a couple moments where they went direct into Turam and Letaro and that seemed to unsettle Juventus, but for whatever reason, Inzaghi made a couple changes for those last fifty minutes, they were going wide a lot more often and not having a, a lot of joy because actually Juventus are quite strong in those areas so um, we saw the potential of, of, of both teams in a sense but it never really resulted in the match that I wanted from this one fair enough,
1: fair result The draw,
3: I think, probably. I would say so, yes. Yeah,
1: very good. Okay, Milan with the win of the weekend, uh, the aforementioned win of the weekend, a 1-0 win over Fiorentina. Uh, Pulisic and Musa both getting uh, some minutes in this one. The highlight, though, Graham, Francesco Camarda becoming the youngest player in Serie A history. Yeah. Uh, 15 years old and 260 days. Graham, would you like to know the number one song on the day he was born on 10th of March
3: 2008? I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Like The it's, Killers or something.
1: It's uh, the most played song on Taylor's iTunes. It's Love in This Club by Usher featuring Young Jeezy. <laughs> that feels so
3: 2008.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: The way Ryan said that as though he were speaking a foreign language really made my heart happy. I'm I definitely heard that song and I know what it's about. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the UK
1: number one was Mercy by Duffy. I do know that one at that point. Uh, but come on, a, a nice video of his parents getting quite emotional as he comes onto the yeah. field. That's a
3: 15-year-old, come on that's uh, uh, it's just unreal i loved i loved um, how big the grin on his face was as he's running on he, even he knows this is ridiculous i shouldn't be here but uh yeah he looked he looked okay when he had uh, a few touches of the ball he did,
1: indeed. Uh, Napoli with a 2-1 win over Atalanta. Uh, Keeper Kovackelia and Ajif Elmas with the goals there. Elmas being set up by the returning Victor Osman for his goal. And one of the game I wanted to mention from Italy, Salah Natana with a shock 2-1 win over Lazio. Uh, Antonio Condreva. I don't know if you guys have seen the goal he scored. Like an amazing long-range winner. It was the goal of the weekend until Garnaccio showed up with his effort. Uh, very good stuff from Antonio Condreva. Graham, I had no idea he was still going. He's 36. Who knows. He's at at Salernitana now
3: Well it's Serie A Isn't it You find all kinds of players Who are still going well Into their late 40s In that league So it doesn't surprise me too much
1: Well done indeed Quick look over At the Bundesliga whereby Munich Of course Had a 1-0 win over Cologne On Friday Harry Kane With his 18th goal In 12 league matches He's become the first Englishman to score 18 times In a Bundesliga season Joe Congrats,
0: Harry Kane. It's just, it's the same script every single weekend for Bayern Munich and for Harry Kane, who's probably thinking that this is the best thing that he's ever done in his entire career, going from Tottenham to Bayern Munich. The top line in my notes for this game is all caps, Harry Kane scores yet again. Mm. 20th minute, it's the only goal for either team in this game. Bayern win the ball back in their own half, which didn't happen a ton in this game because they dominated the ball high up the field. They win the ball back in their own half. They play through some sort of half-hearted counter-pressing from Köln. And drive forward. And it's on to Sané to Cipo who shoots, shot saved. Kane does the elite striker thing and follows up the rebound for a goal. And that's yet another way in which Harry Kane can put the ball in the back of the net. And he did just that.
1: He did just that. Joe, a casual six-goal thriller at the Westfalen Stadium with Dortmund getting a
0: 4-2 win over Gladbach as well. <laughs> yeah, this game was wild. Dortmund down 2-0, then they scored three goals before halftime to go up 3-2. And then they score one more late, late, late in second half stoppage time into an empty net after Gladbach pushed their keeper forward. Dortmund go down, and and it's the easiest finish that you'll ever have at that point. We got a Joe Scally, gio Reyna meetup in this game. Uh, They got to hang out a little bit on the field. Scally playing as a right-sided center back. Gio Reyna coming off the bench in this match. Dortmund are still just so up and down, and I don't really think that's going to change. They're not legitimate title challengers in the Bundesliga this year after taking it down to the wire last season. It's just not going to happen. They have too many flaws, and we saw that early on in this match. They got carved up over and over by Gladbach to begin this game inside the first, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes or so. They couldn't sort out their defensive line. They had a really hard time getting that line straight across, and Gladbach had a lot of success playing through that And then they had a a banger from Manu Kone as well, which was an incredible goal. It's the second one for Gladbach in the 28th minute. So Dortmund, credit to them for fighting back, and and they'll absolutely take the three points and the attacking joy in this game. Just still too many flaws for this Dortmund team for me to really believe in them to get much done this year.
1: The Dortmund roller coaster rides on. Good to hear. Werder Bremen with a 3-0 home defeat at the hands of the league leaders. Bayer Leverkusen. Taylor Rockwell's Bayer Leverkusen, which we'll call them. They are two points clear. Alex Grimaldo on the score sheet once again. He's now scored in each of Leverkusen's last five away games in the league. That's a club record. Uh, Taylor, uh, have you come down from yet another Bayer Leverkusen win?
2: Yeah, I, I saw some things about their fans and some of their banners that-, that brought me down a little bit. It did not make me enamored of Leverkusen, but I am remain enamored, enamored of uh, Chappie Alonso and Bayer Leverkusen. It's just fun that they're... Continuing this run with a, I would say, a comprehensive win, but also it's just cool to see uh, five green W's across their form list. same as Bayern Munich. It feels like we are going to get a title challenge, even if I fully expect Bayern Munich to eventually sort of pull even and then pull away. It is still made for a really exciting season, and I think it, it covers for some of the teams like Joe just talked about with Dortmund not being as strong as we've expected in seasons past just trying to think of the amount
1: of bundesliga seasons where before the year break we thought oh we've got a race here and then dortmund just kill it in the second half of the season maybe uh i think i think i would amend
2: that to like how many seasons we try to talk ourselves into the possibility that there might be a race Mm. and then byron win like seven in a row and and dash that quite expertly.
3: yeah the thing that doesn't fill me with much hope is like Wow, Leverkusen have won pretty much every single game they've played so far this season. Let's have a look at the table. They must have a giant lead. Uh-oh, oh, two points. They're ahead of Bayern know, by mm. a single result. Yeah, I feel like they're still going to overtake them at some point.
1: Fun. All right, one more thing to do on this podcast, Joe Lowry. Let's go to MLS
0: Corner. Yeah. The
1: conference uh, semifinals are set with Columbus and Cincinnati and
0: Houston and LAFC progressing. Yeah, lots of ref controversy, as I mentioned before, so I'm just going to get that out of the way up front. Philly fans, SKC fans, you should both feel a bit hard done by, the fact that calls win against you. You know, Ian Murphy probably just a couple inches offside on that uh, goal that Yerson Mascara scores in second-half stoppage time that gives Cincy the win, and that sends Philly home. And then it sure looks to me like Eric Sviachenko hands – Balls the ball on the goal line. I don't know how you're supposed to say that, but it looks like he's got a handball in the box.
3: Nah. And he's my former neighbor. He can do no wrong. He, is he? He's, is he he's, actually? He's all Graham? good. Is he? Yeah, I used to live next to Sviatchenko. Yeah. Wow. We're learning <laughs> so Story. many things about people that Graham knows on
0: today's show. I love. I'm this. sure I've
3: said that on the show before. Yeah. I
0: I do not. Graham, I do not I'm the guy who lives next door to people, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of Ryan's. Well, friends. no, when they're
3: Celtic players.
0: <laughs> I was going to ask because I I didn't realize that he played in Scotland, but yep, before Midland, he was at Celtic. Absolutely. Okay. Anyway, setting that aside. Graham said it's not a handball. Whatever, I believe Graham. Lots of refereeing controversy, and I, I do feel bad for for both of those fan bases. The Cincy call VAR didn't do anything wrong, so just. To everybody relax but that being said Columbus to go chronologically they beat Orlando 2-0 they were the better team away from home I'm proud to have picked them in my draft with David Goss where I reigned supreme yet again sorry David we'll talk about this more tomorrow they were the better team it took them until extra time to really break through and Orlando did have some dangerous moments they had to have Columbus a nice performance from Patrick Schulte to actually go out there and win this match Ivan Ngulo was dangerous breaking in behind But Columbus were the better team. They had the better goalkeeping. They created the better chances. Eventually, Christian Ramirez gets one. Another Scotland tie-in. There we go. And then Cucho Hernandez scores while Pedro Guayese is gallivanting across his own half for no reason, right? (laughs) So Columbus get that win. Kind of talked about the goal that, that gave Cincy their win. There was almost nothing separating these two teams between Cincinnati and Philadelphia. It's just a really, really difficult moment from Philly that the the uh, the initial call from the AR is an offside, and at that point it, it just kind of dooms them. Again, a really, really, really tight call. A really, really tight game as well. Cincinnati progressed. They'll be home against Columbus on Saturday. The Houston Dynamo beat Sporting Kansas City one 0 Very little separating these two teams as well. It's a goal from Franco Escobar on a set piece, a corner kick that gives Houston the one nil lead. Then there's the, the whole handball controversy again. SKC fans, I'm sorry. And Sporting Kansas City never do a whole lot to actually get themselves back in the game. I thought they were fine. I thought the Dynamo were fine. But SKC didn't do quite enough to really create enough chances to get back in this one. And then Seattle, LAFC, Max Cropot put in an unbelievable performance. LAFC goalkeeper breaks his leg in MLS Cup last year. I'm there. I watch it happen. It's a brutal thing. John McCarthy comes off the bench. LAFC win MLS Cup. Fast forward to this year. McCarthy is the starting goalkeeper for them because Kripot is injured. Now Kripo is back in the team. He is the starter. He's back. He's fit. And he pulls out save after save in this game. Jordan Morris has a great breakaway in the fourth minute. And Kripot comes up big on a save in a basically 1v1 situation after Morris dusts LAFC's two center backs. Kripot would not be broken. And Dennis Buonga broke the deadlock for LAFC with a great goal. Took advantage of some of the, the schematic problems and how Seattle, or at least a weakness, a weak point in Seattle's structure, Goes and targets the space between Alex Roldan and Yaimar Gomez-Andrade. Breaks in. It's a lovely finish. Good build-up play from LAFC in that moment as well. But they did almost nothing else in the attack in this game, LAFC. They sat back. They tried to frustrate. They let Kripo do his thing. And Kripo would not be beaten. It was like he was committed to throwing a perfect game, baseball style. And that is exactly what he did. LAFC now hosts the Houston Dynamo in LA in the Western Conference Final.
2: Yeah, 2.36 goals prevented by Crippo, 7 saves on the night. And then also just moments like in the in the dying seconds, Cross comes in, he collects it in traffic, falls on it, but there's just no uh there's just no risk there, there's no opportunity, there's no vulnerability that gives Seattle any level of momentum. It just felt like no matter what you're going to get through and then he's going to make a save. It was just one of those nights from the goalkeeper and he deserves a ton of credit. Less credit, but worth mentioning because it will make Ryan annoyed. Uh, in the closing minutes of this game, Seattle doing everything they can to get a goal. Uh, they're on the break. It's a it's a nice counterattacking move uh, that ends up getting brought back because there is a A pretty obvious foul off the ball, and it's Chiellini just dropping Raul Ruiz Diaz, who was threatening to run in behind. I don't know if he would have gotten there. I don't know if it would have led to anything, but I do know that Giorgio Chiellini doesn't take risks and just chose to body a player maybe 30 yards off the ball rather than let him run and get into a foot race. So, Ryan, I just wanted to spotlight that one since I know you love Giorgio Chiellini's uh, revolutionary defensive abilities. He's doing it again.
1: We're letting him do it again. <laughs> uh, Taylor Torben with the quote, um, his body may be 39, but his brain is 21. Um, I was quite dumb at 21, Taylor. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you and me
2: both, my friend. You and me both. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What is that supposed to mean? I, I think know. he just like, underhit
0: when... the the mental age by like, I don't know, <laughs> nine years, eight years, whatever the, the peak male young still kind of yeah. mental age is. It's not 21. That is for darn sure. Oh, and man.
2: Deep. It's just that same old thing of, like, he is 34 years old and absolutely ancient. It's like, all right, let's calm it down, y'all. Let's just be a little, a little bit kinder.
1: That We're being, being living- said,
0: Keelini can't run and got dusted on the goal. Well, there is that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> let's not keep talking about him. Let's end the weekend review. Taylor, any final thoughts, Jerry yes. Springstar?
2: Yes, uh, a quick thing to mention, uh, our, our late co-host, uh, Daryl Grove, uh, his birthday would have been this this week, and his, his uh, widow, Shannon, uh, has put out a post. You can find her Instagram, uh, Shannon O'Neill, uh, but I will do my best to share it as well. Uh, she has proclaimed it International Daryl Grove Week, uh, and she has invited people to try to uh, live the various stages of Daryl. So beginner stage would be sitting on your front porch, Listening to a podcast, being kind to a stranger, listening to your favorite music, overscheduling yourself, staying up late, walking a dog, watching the Beckham documentary, or watching a Coen Brothers movie. There's Intermediate Daryl. There's Advanced Daryl. Advanced Daryl involves listening to a Total Soccer Show episode. You should do that. Um, Watching the Wolves match this coming weekend. Definitely do that. Intermediate Daryl would involve binge-watching Parks and Rec and Doctor Who. Uh, ending the day with a movie and a glass of wine would be a, a nice one. And then for Advanced Daryl again, running late for everything, but be charming when you arrive so no one really minds. That was Definitive Daryl, so you should try that as well. But uh, I would encourage a- anyone listening to uh, to have some Daryl Grove moments this week to, uh, to honor his memory and just enjoy life.
1: That's very nice. I love that a lot. We'll, we'll share that on the feed, as you say, Tater. Um, I'm, I probably won't be doing the running late thing because... I don't think I've pull pulled up. Not
2: off. really your style so much. No, not
1: very much. <laughs> oh, all right. But uh, thank you very much, Taylor, for your weekend con and all and sundry. Thank you, my friend. Joe Lowry, a pleasure as always, my good man.
0: All oh, right, back at you, Ryan, darling.
1: And Graham Ruthman, no more three-hour Ridley Scott movies for you. Thank you very much.
0: Happily. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Really. <laughs> Listen, thank you very much
1: for joining us on the feed. We'll be back very shortly, but by now. Bye. <laughs>